I was doing rock and roll journalism back then. So after your hundredth party, you begin to wonder if you're really contributing anything to society. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. I have the privilege of calling today's guest my friend. And when I do my own freelance travel writing, she's also my editor. She's told original stories from every corner of the Philippines and has helped countless writers get their stories into shape. She was Esquire Magazine's first female editor in its 80-year history. On this episode, award-winning editor, lifestyle journalist, and book author Christine Fonassier is talking to us about her foolish career. Growing up, what kind of creativity were you exposed to? Uh, so, actually, I was going to say that I wasn't exposed to a lot of creativity in the sense that I didn't know that it was an actual career choice. So I loved books growing up, but I always thought for the first maybe 10 to 15 years of my life, I was sure I was on a science track and I was convinced I was going to be an inventor, a doctor, (laughs) or a, a fireman at one point but nothing in the creative field. When I went to college, I always thought it was, it was for a, a career in law. I was in communications as a pre-law. At university, Christine joined the school paper and literary magazine, and this experience led her down a different path. A stint in the corporate publishing world lasted only six months before she decided to go freelance, and her career as a music journalist quickly took off. It was the, the absolute golden age of magazines worldwide, and we saw that back home too. So all these lifestyle magazines were were coming up left and right. It was heaven. You could take your pick. But then I was doing some freelancing on the side. And I thought, hey, this is so much fun. And this is something I want to learn. I think I want to do this full time. And so I announced it to my parents. Of course, that freaked them out. Are you sure? Oh, my God. I think they were preparing to just support me for the rest of my life. (laughs) But... I worked very hard and moved out. <laughs> I got to that point in my career where, man, I was doing a lot of lifestyle journalism and I needed to step back and wonder about my life, <laughs> about whether I was doing any good. Yeah, it was really, I think, a crisis of faith. I don't know if everybody goes through this. I think all professionals at one point, if their work matters, they step back and think, am I doing okay? Am I doing well? Am I doing what I set out to do? And for myself, I wanted to know if communications work was contributing to the betterment of society. I know this this sounds big and moo, but I was doing rock and roll journalism back then. So after your hundredth party, you begin to wonder if you're really contributing anything to society. And so I went and volunteered. I worked as a disability communications advisor, not having any background in disability advocacy. But it was good for me because I was coming from a a different perspective. So 
I had a lot of very honest questions about advocacy work. And that really converted me. I, I rediscovered how important communications is in how society works and how we can fix the many broken pieces of life. And I also got very important contacts in the development industry, in the development ecosystem, which I think informs my work as a journalist now. How did that change how you did journalism after that? Because oh, I, I heartily recommend a mid-career volunteering stint to everyone, really. It changes you in ways that you can't foresee. Like now, on, in many ways, no, it's very important to say, you know, a person with a disability instead of that blind person or that, that deaf person. But it also taught me the importance of access, why storytelling is important and why we must keep telling stories outside of the mainstream, why we must keep looking at what we've missed and servicing the people in, in the sidelines. So that's a really good segue into one of the questions I had for you. I had a whole thing about access. Because on the one hand, as the editor-in-chief of a known magazine, you do have access to celebrities and politicians. You've written sure. a book with a billionaire. So that's an edge in your field. Yeah. And then equally, the stories right, that are my favorite are the ones that introduce us to little-known communities in the Philippines. I really love the story you had about the Sama freedivers, for example, water breathers. How, can you talk about how you nurture or cultivate these kinds of access? For beginning writers especially, I think there needs to be an emphasis on professionalism. You just have to be there. You have to put in your hours. You sometimes have to do things that you don't know will pay off. Sometimes it's going to be interviews with people you don't want to do right now. But you never know. You really never know when that, where that's going to lead to. Some of the best stories that I've ever had come from earlier connections that I'd made years before. Like, for example, that, that water breathers feature. I was just reflecting on how I got there. Is several jumps in stories. I first went to an island to write about the specific place, made friends with some resort owners. The resort owners invited me to take free diving lessons with this guy. This guy calls me up two years later to say, hey, I'm doing this cool thing. Do you want to come? And I did. I showed up. There was no story there yet. I showed up. And that story got written maybe one, one and a half, two years later after that. You, you never know. And you have to value every connection that you meet. This speaks to the kind of person you are doing, not just to the kind of writer you are. But you have to be interested in, in everybody's story. You know, a, a story is not going to jump up on the table and, and dance in front of you and say, look, I'm a great story. <laughs> the greatest, the best writers that I know are the ones who, who know the hidden story inside everything. Is that how the cover story for Esquire came about? The mm -hmm. first cover story under your masthead at Esquire was a bit controversial. I think so. That was, that was fun. It really was because it was, I got so many calls that week. 
thing. Maybe give people some background on what that story was. Okay, yeah. So my my first issue of Esquire came in the beginning of 2016. And we covered what I thought was going to be, it was supposed to be a safe cover on an actress, a very popular actress at the time. And as usual, in our long form profiles, we set the place and time that, that the interview happened. And, and we thought that went well. I still think that was one of the best and most insightful stories ever written about that actress. But her fans were not happy because of a, a particular, a very small part where the writer noted that the actress arrived five hours late, which she did. Mm. And the first thing she did was ask for a drink. The story was that... Wait, when you, you say know, drink, you meant water. Like a, an alcoholic okay. drink. No, uh, and I have a cocktail, which is fine. By that time, by that time it was the evening and we all needed that drink. Fine. Not the best showing for her, I mean, between being late and everything, but the point was that it was a very compassionate piece because it showed that this is what amazing popularity can do to a person. She's being pulled a million different ways. She wasn't late because she was being a diva. She was she was late because she had a million things to do. She didn't have a drink because she's an alcoholic. She had a very long day. And look at this poor girl. She's very young and this stardom came nearly overnight and it really was overwhelming but the other side of rabid fanhood is that they they were so protective of her that they cannot take anything anything remotely negative about their beloved actress i think it's also a statement about media literacy sorry about that that (laughs) segue (laughs) please segue away I think it's because I don't think people know how uh, audiences don't always know how to consume media anymore. It's a very us versus them kind of thing. You must say exactly what we want you to say or you're canceled. There's no space for gritty reality. I think we're at fault too. We've been putting out fodder as well. We've been guilty of that and that's what people got used to. So I think we should take a stand also. Putting out quality work is a political stand and it is something that we can do for the future. How do you manage that when it's a politician or this billionaire that asked for help writing a book? Because they always want to control the story. Oh yeah. Well, so you really do have to set the terms early. And you have to figure out ownership. Like I helped in Japsia, one of the tycoons in the Philippines, who was very popular, almost like our, our Jack Ma because of his spectacular rise. Was he the youngest billionaire at the time? I mean, I think he, he might still be the youngest billionaire. He's self-made. So he didn't inherit the money. And I, I truly learned a lot from him when I, when I met him. But it was clear from the get-go that that wasn't my book. And I'm helping him tell his story. And these are the things that he wanted to say. And those terms are clear. With politicians, it is a bit trickier, both in terms of the subject and the readers. As was our want in Esquire, we cover all kinds of people, including unsavory characters. I'm not going to 
to say which of my subjects were unsavory, but some of them were deeply unsavory. We covered gangsters. We covered people with questionable wealth. And it was always done with a nod and a wink. Of course, we weren't going to say, this man is a bad man. He should be in prison. But our, our stance was, okay, we tell the story as it is because it's important to cast a light on what their lives are like and let people base their judgments on that. Because if we don't keep putting those people in the limelight, we will forget. And then they can get away with their evil in the darkness. But it wasn't always well received. Of course, politicians are always going to want to control their image. And that has personal ramifications. You, you can be in real danger because of that. What's an example and also, of that? Oh, I can't. <laughs> so those are those are the things that need to be handled privately. Mm. But okay, well, I, I, I can go back to that later. Readers sometimes don't take that well because like, I don't want to hear about this person. Why do you keep talking about this person? He's a bad man. You know, we, we have to get used to press that isn't just good news. And we have to understand that being in a story, when it's honest, isn't necessarily an endorsement. And as readers, as consumers of media, we have to understand that information is power. It's power being given to us. But it's what we do with it that counts. Media isn't there to take sides, except perhaps to take sides with the truth. But otherwise, that's what we are. We're media. We, we stay in the middle to bring people the power of information, to hand them that power. Wow, that puts a lot of trust in the reader. I mean, it should. That's the relationship we must have. Yes, media has a lot of power as the fourth estate, but I think our power, as with everything else in a democracy, really comes from the people. Hmm. We don't change things ourselves. People have to change things. We just give them the tools to do it, and we give them the impetus to do it. So I'm going to read you something that a competitor of Esquire wrote about the magazine. This person says, game must recognize game. And Esquire Philippines is one of the few local publications actually worth buying and reading. 200 pesos is not an amount to easily part with, after all. Oh, wow. Okay, I never saw that, but thank you. And I thought for it to happen while you were at the helm, the first woman in the magazine's history, was something. What's the significance of a woman editing a men's magazine? There's not a lot of navel-gazing when it comes to men's magazines, because let's call it for what it is. It's like the concept of a men's club where boys can be boys. Back in the day when it was founded, and that was nearly a century ago, there was perhaps a need and there was the, the society was ready for a men's magazine. Now it's just, it, it's an unnecessary distinction. You know, the other part of Esquire, it's also very much a literary magazine. This is a title that has been host with some of the literary giants out there. We have that proud history and I still think that some of the best writing out there, some of the best literature out there comes out in magazines. And Esquire was one of the, the, the titles of that at the forefront. 
so I come on board with that in mind, hoping to nurture the storytelling, the literary aspect of the magazine. And it was important to have a woman because our perspective is one that often gets overlooked. I'm not going to say that it was perfect having me there. There were a lot of things that I would have done differently. Such as? Like, for example, there was an entire Women We Love section that quietly disappeared worldwide. But when I was there, it was still there. It evolved from your scantily clad actress into less scantily clad photos of actresses. (laughs) And I was hoping that we could while you know the the mandate was not to take the male gaze away but to just focus on everything else that makes a woman a woman beautiful their careers their talent if i could do it over i would have pushed back a little bit more and done a little less sexy in our defense it was still very respectful it was very respectfully done tastefully done but perhaps i would have push the envelope on that a bit more. Okay. And, yeah. I mean, it is something that happened after I left, mm. too. Worldwide, you see that there's a pulling away from the, the sexy photos of, of women in men's magazines. You know, it's funny because you can see throughout all the Esquire titles around the world, you can see in what areas this conversation isn't happening yet. So... Hey, Latin America, how you doing? <laughs> was there any reactions in the Escort network around the world or it was just, oh, cool? Yeah, we, I thought it was pretty cool how it was not cool. So there is a selection process uh, that happens. And to be, to be frank, there were some apprehensions from my publishers. And, you know, they put my name forward as a candidate. The, I passed whatever tests that they had for me. There were interviews and, and such. And there were, there were some concerns about whether the mother brand was going to be ready for a female editor, but nothing. That said, I'm not, I'm not the first female editor in a men's magazine. It's happening quietly in many places in the world and happy to be part of that small revolution. So one of the things I realized in looking at your CV is now, because of your day job, editor-in-chief for Smile Cebu Pacific, and the travel writing you you did for Grid. Your day job and your passion project are kind of the same thing? Yes. So <laughs> you have to be really lucky to find something, a job where your interests, your passions coincide with what brings you a paycheck. But also, I think it's not just travel that I love. It's really storytelling. And yes, I find myself extremely lucky that this is able to pay the bills and that I've been able to build a career out of that. So so basically you're saying that you can make a decent living as a writer. Yeah, yes you can, but it is a lot of hard work. What shows up on the page is the tip of the iceberg. A good story looks like it 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 sprung fully formed from the forehead of the writer. Um, but the truth is, there's a lot of work that comes into that. There's a lot of education, even a lot of training. And then there's the research that goes into the piece. And a lot of it doesn't even show on the page. And it's a lot of physical work, too. 
And you said to me when we were chatting on Facebook over the weekend that you were asking yourself why you were still in this line of work. What what, what triggered that? <laughs> you sometimes have to wonder, you know, you, you look around, you see how much bankers make <laughs> or anyone in a corporate job. Mm. And you really have to wonder why, why am I in this? This is a foolish your your podcast title is correct. This is a foolish, foolish career. And if I had a child who asked me if they should, I would say, hmm, perhaps you can also develop a career in law as a fallback. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> sometimes, I, <clears throat> sometimes I wish I did pursue at least a law degree as a fallback. <laughs> but, hmm. I remember when I was a beginning writer and, you know, my, my personal rule for myself was just don't say no to work, just keep doing the work, just turn in things on time, turn in a lot of things on time and be unassailable, you know, do, go the extra mile, do the extra research. And that doesn't change, can... does it? Hmm. Perhaps not. I mean, I think you at one point learn the importance of living a life also and taking care of yourself. Mm. So, but it, it's many years. I, I don't think, and this is, I don't know if I'm going to turn off a lot of people from a career. In the <laughs> we might have. <laughs> but it, I still can't take, I, can't, I still can't take a vacation without guilt. I still am always thinking about work. But maybe, you know, maybe that's, that, that's the flip side of never feeling like work is work. So yeah, on the other hand, yeah, you never feel like you're in, in a job job, but it, that also means that man, you can be on vacation and your head is still working like a writer or like an editor. Mm. Is that a bad thing for you? Have you found yourself at times feeling that you need a break but can't take it mentally? I don't know. Maybe not, to be honest. Mm. Okay, so that's <laughs> remember, good. Yeah. I remember talking to a to a writer friend over dinner and she said, you know, I don't understand how people who don't write process reality. And she's completely right. Because this it, is, it isn't just a job. It's the way we process things. This is the way we think about life. So there's no off switch for that. I, I, I can't imagine how I would cope with reality without reading or writing. And also, you know, I was thinking about the time you started Grid with your co-founders, Paco, and everyone else. And you had a mm -hmm. full-time job plus this. And, you know, when Grid came out fully formed as a magazine, so there was clearly a lot of behind-the-scenes work and planning that got into that. How did you balance that with your full-time work? And what kind of planning did that require? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that was that was years in the making, mm. right? That was years in the making. So what had happened was we were on assignment actually for, for Smile many years ago. It was actually the first time I'd met him. And then we discovered that, you know, we thought about travel the same way. We were thinking that, you know, why is it that we get sent out on assignment for all these different magazines? And their perspective is so different 
they're not telling the stories that we want to tell? How come there's no magazine that tells the stories that we want to tell? And so he said, oh, as, as a joke, maybe we should just make our own. What I didn't know was that he was serious. So he went and looked for investors. He rounded up a, a stellar team and we put put us all to work. So maybe two, three years later, we all sat down in a room again and thought, oh my God, this is really happening. I was the only one with any magazine experience. So I was in charge of actually setting up the system. And yeah, that's a, that's a lot of work. And that's yeah, a lot that's of like, work. that's like you go from your day job, which is running a magazine, to this, which is setting up a running magazine. Away. Yeah. <laughs> I took a short break to join grid full-time also and just do that just do the setup work oh okay and is that how you guys were able to turn it from a project into an ongoing concern because it's still around it was always going to be a long-term thing i mean it was a gamble we weren't sure that it was going to make a lot of money and to be perfectly frank it still doesn't make a ton of money but it is an achievement, definitely an achievement that it's been able to survive so many years and it's still telling the stories that it wants to tell. It, it remains perhaps the only, I, I say this cautiously, I, I'm happy to be wrong, but it's perhaps the only place where you can find long form in print in the Philippines. And in, among foreign magazines, in the international sphere, there are very few yeah. instances of great long form. Plus you in, pay in, your contributors. Oh, sometimes we're late, but <laughs> we try. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was, that's that was important, part of, right? Plus, yeah, that was one of the, the things that we were very careful about because it, it, we knew also, having been freelancers ourselves we knew the struggle and we knew that we weren't going to pardon the language we weren't going to screw other people the way we were screwed so yeah it was very important from the get-go to say that we're not going to pay peanuts we're going to pay creatives what they're worth and we're going to be very upfront to them when it comes to the payment i know you also asked me are young people still interested in writing if not for social media and, you know, I'm happy to say I have encountered several who want to get into this or are trying to get into this. Is there anything that drives you up the wall when you're working with people who are fresh to the industry? Oh, well, I think what I'm really looking for more than talent is attitude. Because as an editor, I can always shape a story. I can always help you shape a story. But... I need somebody who is willing to go above and beyond when it comes to producing that story. I need somebody with a real nose for the story and knows how to find what makes a, a place or a person or a thing unique and is able to like, tell, tell that entire narrative very well. And, and can that, that be trained? Is that yeah, something exactly. someone can learn? Exactly, that's what I was about to say. It's something that you can definitely hone in yourself. And what drives me up the wall is writers who don't think that they need any more training. 
and writers who don't read, those exist. I still get a lot of queries from people who say, I've never read your magazine, but I think I can write for it. And that just drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, I think really, if you love a good story, you're halfway there to being a good writer. Because you know what makes a good narrative, what makes a good yarn, you know, it, what keeps you in, what, what makes you interested, what fires you up. So yeah, definitely. Reading is the first part. How true is it that when you work with creative people, it's like herding cats? I've heard that phrase a lot. I don't know how true it is. I also don't know if it's a bad thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. I still work with creatives a lot. And I have to say, you know, as a cat owner as well, I think both cats and writers get a bad rap because there's a lot more discipline in both kinds of creature than you'd think. The best writers, the best creatives, writers and, and photographers and, and all sorts are also very professional and therefore very, very disciplined. They do treat the, the craft as, as a discipline in, in, in all senses of the word. And on the other hand also, cats are easier to train than you think. My last question then, in a creative career like yours, how important are talent and passion and how far do they get you? Talent, of course, is the bedrock, but I also think it's how one defines talent. So in writing, for example, a lot of people mistake proficiency in English as the end all and be all of writing talent. It is not. The talent is really in identifying a story in looking at reality and being able to weave a great story, an engrossing story about that, a story that people care about. And that has to do with research as well. It has to do with compassion and it has to do with experience. So no, it's not just it's not just a proficiency in the language. But that said, passion also comes in quite a bit. I'd rather when I hire, I look for attitude. I know that's that's trite, but it's true. I'd rather hire for attitude than talent. One of my proudest achievements, I guess, is having been able to identify young talent and being able to work with them and shove them out of the nests so that they can produce, keep on producing great stories, whether or not it's with our title or with me. So when I see young people that I've worked with and their careers have taken off, oh my God, I feel that's the best achievement. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So join us at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.